So welcome back. Seems like we've been gone a lot longer than a week to me. If you're just joining us for James, I think we have one person. Is it you? One person just joining us for the first time for James. There she is in the back. Welcome. <laughs> so let me get started by reminding you why we chose Galatians and James to study together. These are the two earliest letters written to the church. The church was founded at Pentecost around the year 33 AD. Paul wrote Galatians in 47 or 48 AD. And James was probably written just a little bit before that, before the Gentiles started flooding into the church. Galatians and James both deal with the earliest real controversy in the church. What is the relationship between the law and the gospel, between grace and works? So when I did the introduction to Galatians, I gave you a little bit of history and context, and I'm going to remind you as we go into James what's going on. For the first 15 to 20 years of the church, the church was mostly Jewish. It was made up of observant, ethnic, messianic Jews, Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah promised by Yahweh in the Old Testament scriptures. Before Jesus came, the Jews had always believed that in order to worship Yahweh, you had to become a Jew. You had to convert to Judaism. You had to be circumcised, and you had to obey all of the Mosaic law. So the early Christians struggled with that question. What is the relationship between the law and the gospel? Do you have to become a Jew in order to worship Jesus, to be a Christian? Do you have to become a Jew to be saved? And there was a group who answered that question, yes. Um, we met them in Galatians. They are called the Judaizers or the circumcision party or the party of the Pharisees. They, sa they said, yes, you do have to accept all of the Mosaic law and become a Jew in order to be a Christian. They were trying to get Christians to add the law to the gospel. That was the issue Paul was dealing with in Galatians. And his answer was emphatically no. He warned the Galatians not to accept a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Not to turn from the truth of the real gospel, that salvation is by grace alone through faith in Christ. And he called those Pharisees who would add works to the gospel hypocrites. You remember the Pharisees from Jesus' day. He called them hypocrites a lot as well. Hypocrite means actor. They were men who had the outward appearance of righteousness. They tried really hard to follow all of the law and also all of the laws they added on top of the law that weren't really laws. And they thought if they tried hard enough, they could become righteous before God. Yet they failed to address the hard issues the real issues that the law was pointing to. The law was given, Paul says in Galatians, as a temporary measure. It was put in place to deal with sin and to be our guardian until faith in Christ came. We're justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, Paul said, no one will be justified. That's because no one can actually <coughs> keep the law. So the issue Paul addressed in Galatians is how is a person justified? How is a person made right with God? 
How is a person saved? And Paul's answer to this is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But then in chapter 5 and 6 of Galatians, Paul turns back to what, at first glance, is starting to look like works. He talks about the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit, sowing to the flesh, sowing to the spirit. He commands us to do good. In fact, he ends his letter, like he ends all of his letters, with a whole list of commands of things to do. The New Testament has no shortage of commands for Christians. In James, there are more than 50 commands in 108 verses. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So what is the relationship between works and faith? Paul sums it up years later in his letter to the Ephesians. And you all know this, and you're probably singing the scripture song in your head. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Both your salvation and your faith are gifts of God's grace. There are no works necessary or even possible to earn them. That's how we're justified. It's how we're made right before God. And God gets all the glory for it. Does that mean there's no place for works in the church? Absolutely not. It doesn't mean that. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, that we should walk in them. We're to walk in good works because we've already been made right with God. As Paul says in Galatians, we are sons of God. We don't do good works to earn salvation or to merit anything before God. We do good works because we've been changed. We're new creations. Our hearts are different. And the law gives us a window into the heart of God. We talked about that when we were studying Deuteronomy. What does he value? What does he hate? What does he love? For a Christian, the law is a guideline for living. Not because it gives us any merit, but because God is our Father, and he saves us, and he loves us, and he gives us everything we have, and we want to live to please him. That's what the law is for a Christian. So in Galatians, Paul is talking mostly about justification, how we're made right with God, a little bit about sanctification, now that we've been made right, how should we live? James is a book almost entirely about sanctification. How should we live in a way that pleases God? So, welcome to the study of James. It's one of the most loved and at the same time one of the most hated books in the Bible. It's most loved because it's such a practical book. James addresses everyday issues of what it looks like to live as a Christian. And he uses wonderful, easy to understand picture illustrations of what he's saying. It's most hated for two different reasons. Some hate James because it's so direct. James is going to get all up in your business. He speaks in the abrupt style of an Old Testament prophet like Amos or Isaiah. When Dr. Saxon spoke on Sunday, he made a joke about the difference between a preacher and a prophet. A preacher steps on your toes. A prophet amputates them. It made me think of the book of James. Ladies, watch out for your toes. 
Other people don't like James because they say it's not theological enough. James is practical. There's not a lot of doctrine in it. Martin Luther fell into that category. In his 1522 preface to the New Testament, he called James a right strawy epistle, a letter made of straw, lightweight, compared to the Gospels and to Paul's letters. Because James doesn't talk a lot about theology or doctrine. But Luther apparently rethought that comment because in later editions he had it removed from the book. John Calvin said that James, and I'm quoting because I think this is hilarious, James seems more sparing in proclaiming the grace of Christ than it behooved an apostle to be. <laughs> he said that, that James doesn't proclaim the gospel of Christ in the way an apostle should. And he also said, though, it's surely not necessary for everybody to write about the same things. And he's right about that. God inspired a wide variety of men to write scripture. Paul's letters were written by a former Pharisee and brilliant scholar who trained under the best rabbi in Jerusalem. He studied in depth all of the Old Testament, and he was versed in both Jewish and Greek forms of argument. So his letters are full of Old Testament references and very complicated arguments to make his point. Paul's letters are almost always, almost always begin with, this is who you are in Christ, and therefore act like this. Peter's and John's letters are written from the perspective of eyewitnesses. They walked with Jesus during his ministry. They saw the miracles. They had all of the teachings, and Jesus explained the teachings to them. Their letters are full of eyewitness accounts and teachings of Jesus. James is a carpenter's son a blue-collar worker who lived most of his life in a tiny backwater town called Nazareth. He's really a man who appreciates practical and down-to-earth aspects of faith. That's why I love the book of James, and I hope you'll love it too. So let's start, as we always do, let's look at the envelope. The envelope is James 1.1. If you'll turn to James in your Bibles, because I'm going to look at a couple different passages. James 1.1 says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So the author of James is, surprisingly, James. Actually, that's not true. I found out in my research that the name translated James in our New Testament Bibles is actually Jacob. Jacobas is the name. In the Old Testament, that name is always translated Jacob. In the New Testament, it's always translated James. I don't know why. I wasn't able to find out why. But I know that in the very first English translation of the Bible, the Wycliffe Bible of the late 1300s, it was James. Well, you can imagine, because many Jews venerated Jacob, the great patriarch of Israel, a lot of boys were named Jacob. And in the New Testament, in the Gospels, there are four different Jacobs or Jameses mentioned. And I'm going to continue to call him James because that's what our Bible says, and I think it would be confusing if I started calling him Jacob. But if you want to be a hipster or a Bible nerd, you can totally call him Jacob. 
It's legit. So this James identifies himself only as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't really give us a clue about who James was, but it does tell us one thing. He was a man so well known to the church that he only had to identify himself by the name James. So the four Jameses in the gospel, there was James, one of the 12 apostles, the brother of John who wrote the gospel. James and John were the sons of Zebedee. They were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee before Jesus called them. Peter, James, and John were of the inner three of the disciples, disciples that Jesus chose to give special teachings and special experiences to. And we don't really know any more about him until we come to the book of Acts. In Acts 12, we read that King Herod Agrippa killed him with a sword. He was the first of the apostles to be martyred. And this happened around 41, 42 AD. So we think probably that was a little bit too early for this to be the James who wrote this letter. There was another of the 12 apostles named James. Remember, Jacob is a common name. He was called James the Less, or Little James, which means he was either younger or shorter than the other James. James is called the son of Alphaeus. And interestingly, Matthew was also called the son of Alphaeus. I think they might have been brothers. The Bible doesn't tell us any more about him. Um, it doesn't seem like he's well enough known to have been this James who wrote this letter. Another of the apostles, Judas, not Judas Iscariot, there were also two Judases, had a father named James, and we know nothing about him, so I think we can pretty be pretty sure it wasn't him. And then there was James, the son of Mary and Joseph, the half-brother of Jesus. And I say half-brother because both men had the same mother, but Jesus' father was God through the Holy Spirit, and James's father was Joseph. This is the James that the early church fathers and most current scholars believe to be the author of this book. And we don't know much about him. Matthew 13 and Mark 6 tell us that Jesus had four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and also some unnamed sisters. We don't know who they were or how many there were. James is listed first, so that means he's the eldest of the half-brothers. Mark 3 tells us at one point in Jesus' early ministry, his family went out to seize him and bring him home because they thought he was out of his mind. So James apparently thought his brother was crazy. John 7 tells us that Jesus' brothers mocked him because they did not believe. So they were unbelievers. Sometimes I try to put myself in their place. How many of you had a perfect older brother or sister? How many of you were the perfect older sister? <laughs> and we know better because none of us is perfect. So imagine living with a brother who actually was perfect. He never lied. He never disobeyed. He did exactly what he was told to do all the time. He never sassed his parents. The unredeemed sinner does not want perfection modeled for them. It makes them angry, and I think maybe Jesus' brothers were angry. None of his brothers stood with their mother Mary at the cross. 
not one of them. So the next time we meet James is in Acts 1. Jesus has ascended to heaven, and the apostles are back in the upper room praying as they wait for the promised Holy Spirit to come. With them are the women who traveled with Jesus, and Mary, Jesus' mother, and his brothers. How did James get there? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15 gives a list of people to whom Jesus appeared after the resurrection. It's not a complete list. But verse 7 says, And then he appeared to James. Jesus appeared to James. What grace that was. Jesus only appears to three individuals in that list. He appears to Peter, who denied him, and whom Jesus would make the apostle to the Jews. He appears to Paul, who persecuted the church, and whom Jesus would make the apostle to the Gentiles. And he appears to James, who mocked him in unbelief, and whom Jesus would make the head of the mother church in Jerusalem. I love how the Lord chooses unlikely people. So we know that James was the respected and popular head pastor of the church in Jerusalem. There are other references to him in scripture, and there is church tradition that tells us about this. Paul mentioned James in Galatians, where he says he met with James, the brother of the Lord, who along with Peter and John seemed to be pillars of the church in Jerusalem. In Acts 12, when Peter is delivered from prison by an angel of the Lord, he sent word to James and the brothers. James chaired the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where the issue of whether or not a believer had to become a Jew to be saved was finally decided. When Paul returned to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey, right before he was arrested in Acts 21, he went in to see James and the elders. So most people believe this well-known James is the author of the book of James. Early church historians called him James the Just because he was well-known for his righteousness. He had another nickname, too, which is a little funnier, Camel Knees. He was devoted to prayer, and he was kneeling so much in prayer that his knees became hard and calloused like a camel, and so they called him Camel Knees. We know about this James that he had the benefit of growing up in a godly home where scripture was valued and taught. After all, God himself chose Jesus' parents, and that's where James grew up. We know that James is grounded in scripture. There are more than 40 references to the Old Testament in his letter. And James lived with Jesus for 30 years. He knew him in a way that few other people did. We can tell from his letter that although he was not a believer until after the resurrection, he'd had some exposure to Jesus' teachings. After all, most of Jesus' ministry was in Galilee, and that's where James lived. The teachings of Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount and other teachings from Matthew, are reflected in his letter. There are probably about 20 allusions to the Sermon on the Mount in the letter of James. Church history records for us that James was murdered around the year 62 AD. He was attacked by priests and Pharisees. He was thrown from the temple and stoned, and when he still hadn't died, they beat him to death with a club. 
Yeah. So to whom is James writing? He's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. 12 tribes refers, of course, to Jews. Remember, the church was still mostly Jewish. And these believers are in the dispersion. That means they're scattered abroad from Israel. They're not in Israel. Now, the dispersion usually refers to Jews whom God scattered abroad as a direct result of the curses from Deuteronomy 28. Israel had disobeyed God's covenant over and over and over and over and over again, and he finally removed them from the land. Ten tribes, the northern tribes, were, de were destroyed by Assyria in 722 B.C., and the southern kingdom in 586 was taken away into Babylonian captivity. They were there for 70 years in captivity. And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see that not a huge number of Jews returned to Israel. Jerusalem was in ruins, and they'd made lives for themselves in 70 years outside of Israel. So a lot of them did not return. But many of them, once the temple was rebuilt, did come back for the three pilgrimage holidays. And they were there on that great Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell. Acts tells us there were Jews from Parthia, Media, Elam, Mesopotamia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Cyrene, Libya, and Rome in town. And God was pleased to add 3,000 souls to the church that day. And these men and women took their new faith back home with them into the dispersion. In Acts 8, another dispersion happens. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is stoned, and Paul begins a great persecution against the church. And Acts 8 tells us that all except the apostles fled into Judea and Samaria. And then Acts 11 tells us that these same people traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch speaking the word of God. So the original Old Testament dispersion of the Jews was an act of God's judgment and also turned out to be a blessing to the nations. The New Testament dispersion of the Jews was meant to be a blessing to the nations, a way of bringing the gospel message into the nations. So James is writing to these, these scattered believers who are living outside of Israel James is a general letter. It's not addressed to a specific church or a specific person the way Paul's letters are. It was meant to be an open letter that was circulated among the house churches and read to all the churches in the dispersion. So let's take a brief look at the body of James' letter. I chose James 1.22 as the theme verse for James. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James' letter says that faith and right doctrine is important, but it is not enough to simply believe in right doctrine. Even the demons believe that. James' point is that faith that is genuine must and will produce good works. A person who is born again, who is a new creation in Christ, with a heart that is truly changed, will produce works of the Spirit. God desires all of us to grow up in our faith. So you'll see the word perfect or perfection a lot in James' letter. 
Perfect doesn't mean flawless. It means whole, or something which works in the way it was designed to work. That's God's goal in our sanctification. We were created in God's image, created to be like him. But in the fall, that image was broken and marred. God's goal in salvation is not only to save us from hell, but to restore what was broken by conforming us into the image of Christ, to fix us so that we work in the way we've been designed to work. And that's James' point in his letter. You say you're saved by faith, then your works had better show it. And if they don't, you have deceived yourself. Sometimes James is called the Proverbs of the New Testament. He was obviously heavily influenced by the book of Proverbs. His letter is full of short, pithy statements, colorful illustrations, and easy-to-remember verses. He covers a wide range of subjects on how to put our faith to work, things like how to deal with trials, prayer, double-mindedness, partiality, treating the rich one way and the poor a different way, the destructive nature of our words, envy and selfish ambition, what wisdom really is, the root of sin, caring for the sick and the sinner, planning for tomorrow. And he talks a lot about the final judgment. James 2.26 says this, just as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. A genuine faith is a living, working faith. So that's what James is about. But before we leave, I want to address the great big elephant in the room. There is an important issue in James that might be a little confusing to you because it is a confusing issue. <laughs> Something that James... James and Paul are in conflict with each other. In Galatians, Paul says that Abraham was justified by faith, not by works of the law. James says in chapter 2, Abraham was justified by works and not by faith alone. What? Well, let's turn to chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 20 through 24. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What? Is there a contradiction in Scripture? We know they can't be. God is the author of Scripture. If there was a true contradiction in Scripture, God would be a liar, and we know that he can't lie. So let's take a closer look so that you don't freak out when you get to James 2. First of all, what does James believe about salvation? Well, Galatians 2 tells us that Paul went up to Jerusalem and set before the apostles the gospel he'd been preaching to the Gentiles. Paul and James discussed the gospel, and they agreed on the gospel. 
James gave Paul the right hand of fellowship. They agreed that salvation was by faith. When James chaired the Jerusalem Council, he agreed with Paul that the Gentiles were saved in the same way that the Jews were, by faith, apart from the law. So what does James say about salvation in his letter? Let's look at verses one, at chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. And then in verse 21, he refers to the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This is James' statement about justification, how we're made right with God. Our salvation, he says here, is a gift from God. We're brought forth or born or regenerated by God's own will. That's grace. And it's through his word that this happens. God's word of truth, the gospel, is implanted into the hearts of his elect. That's faith. James is saying that's how we're made right with God, by grace through faith. Now, James doesn't talk a lot about the work of Jesus or the work of the Holy Spirit in this experience. Doesn't mean he doesn't think they're important. It just means he assumes his readers already know that information. If they're in the dispersion because they were, they were chased out of the Jerusalem church by the persecution after Stephen's stoning, they were his own people, and he knew they knew the truth of the gospel. So when James appears to say in chapter 2 that Abraham was justified by works, he can't be saying Abraham was made right with God by works. That would contradict all of the rest of scripture, and it would contradict what he himself had already said in chapter 1. James surely knew, because he was raised in a home where scripture was taught, that Abraham was justified in the sense of being made right with God by faith before any works were done. In fact, at the end of his, his um, study of Abraham in chapter 2, he cites the time when Abraham was justified. He cites Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's when Abraham was saved, and it happened 30 years before the sacrificial offering of Isaac that James is talking about here. So what does James mean by justified? Because he's clearly using the word justified a little bit differently from the way Paul uses it. Well, you remember what James is writing about. He's not writing, as Paul was, about how a person is saved. He's writing about what a saving faith looks like. What is the difference between a genuine faith and a false faith, a living faith and a dead faith? a faith that can save, and a faith that can't save. And also remember that you don't see church words in James. He's writing practical, blue-collar stuff. You don't see anything about limited atonement. You don't see anything about penal substitution. James is not using church words. He's using words in the way you would use words, or I would use words. 
who talks about practical things in everyday language. James is using the word justified in chapter 2 the way we might use justified in everyday speech. Justified can also mean vindicated. For example, something that's shown to be true by testimony or evidence. Let me give you an example. Let's say my daughter was having a math test tomorrow. And I said to her, honey, have you studied for your test? And she said, yes, mom, I have. Because she's usually reliable and faithful, I would trust her that she had done that. So the next day she goes to school and she takes her test and she gets an A. I might say my faith in her was justified because her grade proved that I was right to have faith in her. I might say that, um, I might say that her reliability was justified by the fact that she got an A on the test. Does that make sense? Okay. That's the way James is using justified. He's not using it to mean saved. He's using it to mean something that's proven by the evidence. He's not saying justified the way Paul is. This is how Abraham was made right with God. He's saying justified in the sense of this is the evidence which proves that Abraham's faith was real. So one of the major themes in James is the coming judgment of the Lord, and that's why he's presenting the evidence this way. He returns to it over and over again. And there was a note in, the, in my Reformation Study Bible that helped me understand a little bit better. And he talks about it, the, what's going to happen at the final judgment. The works of a person's entire life are displayed at the final judgment, not in order to receive God's verdict that the person is righteous, but to prove that the person possesses the kind of faith, real faith, by which we can lay hold of the righteousness of Christ, which is the only basis for God's justifying verdict. Our works will be what prove that our faith is true. And that's what James is talking about in chapter 2. If we're truly born, ag born again, a new creation, have a new heart, there will be works that show that that's a true thing. So in Matthew 25, Jesus spoke about the final judgment when he would come back to judge. And he talked about how he would separate all the people in the world like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he says to the believers that they're blessed by the Father, and that they will inherit the kingdom prepared for them from before the foundation of the world. This is saying that God's kingdom is bestowed by grace. It was prepared for them before the foundation of the world, before they'd done any deeds at all. But if you look at what separates those two groups of people, the sheep from the goats, one group of people had deeds and the other group didn't. Jesus said to those who were to enter the kingdom, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was naked and you gave me clothing. Their deeds are what show that their faith was real. They don't merit salvation. They're proof of salvation. All scripture, including James, agrees that salvation is by grace alone 
through faith alone, in Christ alone. All scripture, including Paul, agrees that saving faith is never alone. James and Paul are not fighting each other on this issue of salvation. They're fighting side by side for the truth of the gospel. We are saved only by God's grace, only through faith, only in Christ. But our faith, if it's a saving faith, will produce works. A changed heart leads to a changed life. And that's what James is about. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this book. Um, you have told us in scripture to examine our hearts and see if we're in the faith. And James is one book where we can do that. Father, we know that we're not saved by what we do. And we know that if our hearts are truly changed, we will love to do the things that please you. Father, we won't do them perfectly. You know that. Help us, Lord, though, to do them better. Help us to love you more and to want to please you more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.